This is a song called Rocket 88 by Jackie Brinston and his Delta Cats. It's on the short list of contenders for the first ever rock and roll song. I don't really consider it to be a serious contender for that title, but it is a really important song. Everybody likes my Rocket 88, baby will ride in style, moving on along. And it's an interesting example, for a number of different reasons, of someone not getting the proper credit. Rocket 88 was recorded in March of 1951 in Memphis, Tennessee. A young guitar player named Isier Turner went into a studio called the Memphis Recording Service with his band, The Kings of Rhythm. Now, you most likely know who Isier Turner is. He's more famously known by his nickname, Ike. And you also probably know what the Memphis Recording Service studio was. It was a studio that was later renamed Sun Studios. And the producer of the song was Sam Phillips, the man who owned Sun Studios and later Sun Records. He put out the first records by Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins, and Roy Orbison. But in March 1951, he didn't have his own label yet. So what he would do was take the recordings made at his studio and sell them to other record labels. And that's what he did with Ike Turner's song. He sold it to Chicago's Chess Records, and for some reason when they printed the label, they didn't put that it was Ike Turner and his Kings of Rhythm. Instead, they credited the vocalist, who was Ike Turner's saxophone player, Jackie Brenston. They also credited Jackie Brenston with writing the song, even though Ike had written it. When it came time to pay the band, Sam Phillips gave Jackie Brenston $910 to release the rights to him. Ike Turner and the rest of the band only got paid $20 each. But don't feel too bad for Ike Turner. In addition to being a horrible domestic abuser, he also basically copied the song Rocket 88 from an older song from 1947 called Cadillac Boogie by Jimmy Liggins. And the claim that this is the first ever rock and roll song is pretty dubious. Rock and roll is music comprised of a lot of different genres, from blues to gospel to country to R&B, and there are plenty of songs going back to the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s that all sound just as much rock and roll as Rocket 88. Listen to the song Strange Things Happening Every Day from Sister Rosetta Tharp and tell me that doesn't sound like a rock and roll record. That was from 1944. Even Ike Turner said it wasn't a rock and roll record. He said it was an R&B record, but he did say that the song was responsible for rock and roll. And he might have more of a point there. One of the big reasons that Rocket 88 is even in consideration as the first ever rock and roll song is because Sam Phillips claims that it is. And Sam Phillips did a lot to bring rock and roll to the mainstream. He saw the African-American artists that were recording music in his studio, and he thought if he could get a white guy to do it, he could make a ton of money. And when Elvis walked into his studio to make a record for his mom, he saw his chance. And part of his inspiration to do that was seeing the success of songs like Rocket 88. It was also one of the first black songs to be played on a white radio station. And it was one of the first songs to prominently feature a really distorted electric guitar. The guitar on the record was played by a guy named Willie Kizart. The reason for that sound was that Willie's amplifier got broken. The legend is that when the Kings of Rhythm were on their way to Sam Phillips' studio, they got a flat tire and the amplifier actually fell out of the trunk. When they got to the studio, they stuffed the broken amplifier with wadded newspapers, and that's what created the distortion. So the guitar player who quite possibly laid the blueprint for a distorted electric guitar in rock and roll got paid $20 for it, and most people don't even know his name. So you can see the problems of giving proper credit to the musicians that deserve it goes all the way back to the beginnings of rock and roll. And today's episode is all about that, giving credit where credit's due. Today we have the stories of three artists who were ripped off, uncredited, and largely left out of music history. The first story is about a singer-songwriter who is largely forgotten today, even though in the 70s she won Grammys and had hits and crossed paths with almost every famous rock star from that era. And she also wrote one of the most classic songs of the 70s, even though she was never given credit for it. The second story is about a singer who's a lot more mysterious. She wasn't even really a professional singer. She was somebody that happened to be in the right place at the right time and ended up singing one of the most iconic hooks of the 2000s, but never got the credit and almost didn't even get paid for it. 
And the third story is about a singer whose voice is practically synonymous with an entire genre of music. But at first, her name and her image were left out of it, until she fought to get the recognition she deserved. Today, we're shining a spotlight on some of these uncredited heroes. I'm Patrick Hicks, and this is Good Measure. What keeps us together across town, across space? In 1971, the singer Rita Coolidge is at her record label offices getting some pictures taken. She's about to release her debut album, and she's taking some photos for publicity. She said that in-between time is wonderful. After you finish the record, but it hasn't come out yet, she said, in that time, you can't do anything but wait and hope and believe. While she's getting her pictures taken, the photographer puts on the radio. At one point, she's listening to the song on the radio and realizes... This is my song, but not a song from this record, not a song that I've ever even recorded, but a song that I wrote. It's a song called Layla. She immediately goes out to the record store to get the album. The title of the album is Layla and Other Assorted Love Songs. So Rita is thinking, how am I a writer on the title track of this new album and nobody told me anything about it? Layla and Other Assorted Love Songs is an album by this band called Derek and the Dominoes. They're kind of a side project, one-off band, but they're led by the singer and guitar player Eric Clapton. And when Rita looks at the credits on the album, the song Layla is credited to Eric Clapton and to Derek and the Dominoes' drummer, Jim Gordon. No mention of Rita Coolidge. So, what happened? First, let me tell you a little bit about Rita Coolidge. Rita was born in 1945 in Lafayette, Tennessee. It's about an hour northeast of Nashville. And she said she could sing before she could even talk. Her father was a minister, so she grew up singing in the church. And she had two sisters, Priscilla and Linda. And she grew up singing harmonies with them. She also went to grade school with a famous singer, the singer Brenda Lee. So it seemed like Rita was destined to be a singer. In high school, her family moved to Florida. She went to high school in Jacksonville and then went to Florida State for college. In college, she was really into the blues, Robert Johnson and Muddy Waters. And then she heard Bob Dylan for the first time, and he became a huge influence on her. After she graduates college in 1967, Rita decided to move to Memphis. By this time, her dad had relocated to a church there. At school, she had majored in art and minored in art history, and she thought maybe in Memphis she would get a job as a teacher. But instead, she got a job at this place called Pepper Tanner. They're a company that syndicates radio jingles across the country, and so Rita starts singing jingles for them, singing the call letters to different radio stations. And Pepper Tanner also had its own record label called Pepper Records, and they signed Rita to a record deal, and she actually records a single for them. But things don't really work out with Pepper Records. They don't like the name Rita Coolidge. They want her to change her name to Antoinette Lovely. But Rita turns them down. Rita and her sister Priscilla, who she lives with, are both trying to make it in the music scene in Memphis. Rita is pretty entrenched in the music scene there and is friends with a lot of people. She's really good friends with Booker T, the leader of Booker T and the MGs of Green Onions fame. In fact, her sister Priscilla later gets married to Booker T. And then Rita meets this piano player named Leon Russell. Leon Russell is another music figure that doesn't get enough credit. He is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the Songwriters Hall of Fame, but he's one of those guys who's kind of more important for who he played with and who he influenced than any of the songs he wrote. But at the time, he was playing with this group called Delaney and Bonnie and Friends. And Leon introduced Rita to the songwriting duo who was at the head of that band, Delaney and Bonnie Bramlett. And that's when Rita's career really took off. Delaney and Bonnie and Leon convinced her to move to L.A., And she started working as a singer in their group. And the group, as the name and friends implies, was kind of a messy mishmash of a bunch of different artists all just jamming and having a good time. They had a record deal with Elektra Records, but they had some really famous fans, one of whom was George Harrison, who tried to sign them to Apple Records. 
And they also tried to sign with Apple Records, even though they were already signed to Elektra. So that deal fell apart. They never got signed. But the important thing is that George Harrison then convinced his friend Eric Clapton that he should take Delaney and Bonnie and Friends out on tour. Eric Clapton's career is kind of weird for a rock and roll legend because he played in so many different bands. He had played in the Yardbirds and Cream, and the band he was playing with when Delaney and Bonnie and Friends opened for him was his short-lived project Blind Faith. That was the group he did with Stevie Winwood that's probably best remembered for having a naked child on the cover of their album. But not only are Blind Faith not really that well-remembered today, but Eric Clapton didn't even really like them when they were on tour. While they're on this tour in 1969, Eric Clapton finds himself being way more drawn to the openers, Delaney and Bonnie and Friends. He likes their music better than Blind Faith, he likes the anonymity he gets when he performs with them, and he's just having a great time with them. He likes them so much that he gets them a new record deal with his record label, and they put out this album that becomes their biggest album. It's called On Tour with Eric Clapton. You was damn near blind when he died last week But working in the sun both a man like a dog all day Work on lies Work on I don't know if people today would really know any of the songs from it, but it's a good record. It went to number 29 on the Billboard charts, and it went gold. But the band's studio albums never captured the magic of their live show. Also, Delaney Bramlett was abusive towards Bonnie Bramlett. He was a heavy cocaine abuser. The band broke up in 1970, and Delaney and Bonnie divorced in 1972. But the band members of Delaney and Bonnie and Friends keep on playing together. For one, they play on Eric Clapton's debut solo album. In 1970, after the Bonnie and Delaney and Friends breakup, a bunch of the members went on to play for Joe Cocker. Leon was playing guitar, Rita Coolidge on vocals, and he brought a couple different drummers on tour with him. One of them was Dave Mason, and another was this guy, Jim Gordon. Leon also wrote a song that Joe Cocker covered called Delta Lady that he had actually written about Rita. Now, Jim Gordon wasn't just the drummer in these bands, he was also Rita's boyfriend. By the time he was playing with Joe Cocker, Gordon already had an insane resume. Jim Gordon had grown up in the San Fernando Valley in California and became a professional drummer at 17. He drummed for the Everly Brothers and then became a really in-demand session musician. He played on a bunch of super famous songs. He played on God Only Knows from the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds. He was actually credited as playing drums and orange juice cups. He played with Harry Nilsson. That's him playing the solo on Nilsson's song, Jump Into the Fire. He played on John Lennon's Power to the People. And not only was he an amazing drummer, he was also a pretty capable piano player, and he wanted to do a solo album of his own. And since him and Rita were dating and were both musicians, naturally, they wrote songs together. Rita had been writing her own songs since college. And one day, Jim came to her with a chord progression that he was playing on piano. Rita said she loved it, that it was a stunning riff. But then they started working on it together. She started playing a counter melody to his original progression. She said it answered and resolved the tension of his chords and built to a dramatic crescendo. Then she wrote the lyrics to the song, and they called it Time. In parentheses, don't let the world get in our way. They made a demo of the song, and they even played it for Eric Clapton, hoping that he would cover it. Rita said she distinctly remembers sitting at the piano at a place called Olympic Studios, and Eric Clapton listened to her play the song all the way through. She left him with a copy of the demo, and then she never heard anything about it again. Eventually, the song Time was recorded by Rita's sister Priscilla and her husband Booker T. So now, how does the song become Layla? So Eric Clapton has broken up Blind Faith, his solo album has come out and not done that well, and he wants to start a new band. 
So in the spring of 1970, he starts a new band with himself on vocals and guitars, and then three members of the Delaney and Bonnie and Friends band. The keyboard player is Bobby Whitlock. The bass player is a guy named Carl Radel, and Jim Gordon plays the drums. They played their first show live together on June 14th of 1970 at London's Lyceum Theatre. At first, they were just going to call their band Eric Clapton and Friends. But this piano player, Tony Ashton, he suggested the name Dell and the Dominoes, because apparently Derek or Dell was a nickname that he had for Eric Clapton. Bobby Whitlock later said that the name was supposed to be Derek and the Dynamics and that Ashton had mispronounced it, but for whatever reason, when he introduces the band that night, he calls them Derek and the Dominoes. Welcome Bobby Whitlock, Jim Gordon, Carl Radel, and Eric Clapton. Derek and the Dominoes! The first thing they did, the whole band, Derek and the Dominoes, played together on George Harrison's album, All Things Must Pass. Apparently, in exchange for playing on that album, the deal was that the producer of All Things Must Pass, Phil Spector, would produce a single for Derek and the Dominoes. So he produced two songs for them called Tell the Truth and Roll It Over. They also worked on another album for Dr. John, the album The Sun, Moon, and Herbs. So they were getting a lot of practice in the studio before they were going to go record their album. In August of 1970, they spent a few weeks touring around England, playing basically anonymously for 50 to 60 people a night. They charged one pound for admission, and Eric Clapton loved it. He loved the anonymity. Then on August 23rd, they go to Miami, Florida to begin recording their first album. They record at Criteria Studios with this producer, Tom Dowd. And most of the songs on the album were written about Eric Clapton's obsession with his best friend George Harrison's wife named Patty Boyd. He had fallen in love with her, and the song Layla is about her. And the recording sessions for the album that would be Layla and other assorted love songs are pretty weird. Everybody in the band is doing serious heroin. They had started experimenting during the recording of All Things Must Pass, and now they're doing it a ton. Also, Tom Dowd at the same time was producing an album for the Allman Brothers Band called Idlewild South. And before they start recording Layla, Tom Dowd took all the dominoes to an Allman Brothers show. And Eric already knew who Dwayne Allman was, but when he saw this show, he was like, you gotta come in and play on the album. So he invites the whole Allman Brothers Band into the studio, and Dwayne Allman ends up playing on most of the songs on the record. Eric actually invited him to become a full member of the band, but he said no. Now, the title track, Layla, is actually recorded in two parts. On September 9th, 1970, they record the first part of the song, which is like all the verses and choruses. But then several weeks later, they go back in and they add a coda to it. And this long, extended second part of the song is basically Rita and Jim's song, Time. kind of disputed how Eric Clapton heard it. Rita says that he had heard it because she played it for him and then gave him the demo. But other people have said that Jim Gordon was working on his solo album in the studio at the same time they were recording Layla. And Eric Clapton overheard him playing him and Rita's song Time. And Clapton worked out a deal. In exchange for letting Gordon use the Domino studio time, Gordon would let him have that piano part and add it to Layla. And it becomes a really famous part of the song, one of the things that makes it so unique. Rita wrote in her autobiography that it sounded stunning, juxtaposing Eric's desperate verses about his unrequited love for Patty and the Codas, make that my Codas, wistful winding melody with Bobby's piano and Eric and Dwayne's guitars intertwined with Jim's dramatic cymbal fills, was a masterstroke. Eric's impassioned singing and guitar playing inspired by the torture of falling into a forbidden love, the coda was nothing less than bliss, the sound of love fulfilled. When Rita hears it, she's devastated. She calls up Robert Stigwood, who was Eric Clapton's manager. And according to her, he said, You're going to go up against Stiggy, the Robert Stigwood organization? 
Who do you think you are? You're a girl singer. What are you going to do? She talks to people at her record label, and they basically tell her, you don't have the money to fight this. What are you going to do? And so Rita kind of lets it go. And part of the reason is the song is not a hit. When Layla and Other Love Songs is released in November of 1970, it dies. It doesn't chart in the UK. It doesn't go very high in America. doesn't really get a lot of attention. Part of the reason people speculate is that people didn't know that Eric Clapton was in the band. That anonymity that he loved by calling the band Derek and the Dominoes proved to be bad for sales. It wasn't until 1972 when Layla is included on a greatest hits record called The History of Eric Clapton and then issued as a single in July of 1972 that it becomes a hit. And then it becomes a big hit. It's number 10 in the U.S., number 7 in the U.K., and it becomes Eric Clapton's signature song. It's still played on the radio all the time. It's used in movies. I mean, it's one of the most famous scenes in Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. uses strictly the piano coda. When they found Carbone in the meat truck, he was frozen so stiff it took them two days to thaw him out for the autopsy. And Rita never gets the credit. But a lot of tragedy happened after this album. Eric Clapton was so upset about its failure that he slid further into drugs and depression. His heroin addiction was really bad until he finally got clean from it in 1974, but his alcoholism continued after that. In 1976, he went on stage and gave a drunken, very racist rant about immigration in England. It was directly responsible for a series of concerts in England called Rock Against Racism throughout the rest of the decade. As part of his rant, he said horrible things, made all sorts of racial slurs, and promoted this really far-right fascist politician. And it's something he's never really apologized for. He's insisted a lot that he's not racist and has black friends, but he's never taken back the words that he said, and he still endorsed that racist politician. He did eventually marry Patty Boyd in 1979, but because of his alcoholism and infidelity, they divorced in 1989. Dwayne Allman, who played guitar on the record, died in October of 1971 in a motorcycle accident. The bassist Carl Radel died in June of 1980 from a kidney infection related to years of drug and alcohol abuse. Maybe the craziest outcome is what happened to Jim Gordon. Jim's drug abuse problems got really serious, and he turned abusive towards Rita. He actually punched her as hard as he could, and she left him. But he continued throughout the 70s making iconic music. He played with artists like Steely Dan, and probably his most enduring contribution to music, maybe even more than Layla, was with a band he was in called the Incredible Bongo Band. They did a cover of this song called Apache, which was an old Cliff Richard and the Shadows song. But in the middle of this song, there's an extended drum break played by Jim that became one of the biggest breaks in hip hop. His drums from Apache have been sampled in over 750 songs. And not just hip-hop, but in dance music genres, in pop music, it's an iconic drum break. One that a lot of people might not know was played by the same guy who played on the Beach Boys and Layla. But throughout his life, Jim also started developing schizophrenia. Rita later wrote that there were signs of it when they were together that she attributed to his heavy drug use. But he began hearing voices telling him to do things, like punch his girlfriend as hard as he could. And then later kill his mother. On June 3, 1983, Jim took a hammer and attacked his 71-year-old mother, and then, when he couldn't kill her with the hammer, stabbed her to death with a butcher knife. When he was arrested, he claimed that voices had told him to kill her. He was diagnosed with acute schizophrenia and sentenced to 16 years to life in prison. And that's where Jim Gordon spent the next 40 years of his life. He was incarcerated at a psychiatric prison in California. He was up for parole several times throughout the years, but he never attended any of the hearings, and his doctor said that he was seriously psychologically incapacitated for the rest of his life, that he was a danger to others if he didn't take his medication. Jim died in the psychiatric prison this year, March 13, 2023, at the age of 77. 
Rita Coolidge, even though she's never gotten the credit she deserved, did have more of a happy ending. After she broke up with Jim Gordon, she dated Graham Nash. He's one of the people who, along with Bobby Whitlock, have backed up that she wrote the coda of Layla. Then after that, she met the singer-songwriter Chris Christofferson. They got married in 1973, they had a child together in 1974, and then they started recording albums together. They actually won two Grammys together for Best Country Performance by a Duo or Group, one in 1974 for a song called From the Bottle to the Bottom, and one in 1976 for a song called Lover Please. And then in 1977, Rita Coolidge actually had her first big hits as a solo artist. In March of 1977, she released the album Anytime, Anywhere. The album had a couple big hits. She did a cover of the old Jackie Wilson song, Your Love Has Lifted Me Higher and Higher, that went to number two on the Billboard charts. The album went to number six and went platinum. Then she had a gold record in 1978, another one in 1979, and in 1983 she actually sang the theme song for a James Bond movie, Octopussy. The song was called All Time High. Another crazy thing about Rita Coolidge's career is that Layla is not the only classic song that she didn't get credit for writing. She also wrote another song that started off being inspired by Eric Clapton. When she was on that first tour with him in 1969, she would watch the girls that would look up at him, and she got this idea for a song called Groupie, in parentheses, Superstar. I'm going to introduce you to a uh, young Delta lady, uh, Rita Coolidge. She named it Superstar, and then her and Bonnie Bramlett wrote the song. Then they gave it to Delaney Bramlett and Leon Russell, and they finished it. But when they gave the song to other artists to cover, Rita's name wasn't on it. And the song became a big hit, first for Bette Midler, then the biggest version was done by the Carpenters. In the 80s, Luther Vandross had a big hit with it, and even though eventually Bonnie and Leon admitted that the song had been her idea, she never got her name on it. She said only one time did she get her name included in the credits. It was when Usher covered the song for a Luther Vandross tribute album. He included Rita's name in the credits. In her autobiography, she said, thank you, Usher. But for Layla, she's never gotten her name on it, and she's never gotten a dime in royalties. But she said she's not bitter about it. Jim Gordon had a daughter from a previous relationship named Amy. And Rita said she found out that Jim's royalties from his part of the song were all going to Amy. So she said that's how she made peace with it. She also said that to this day, she's never heard from Eric Clapton about it. Rita never sued Eric Clapton for not receiving royalties on Layla. But the singer in our next story did sue. She only sang two lines in the song. And the lines she sang were already part of the lyrics, so really all she contributed was a melody. But when she sued, she sued for copyright infringement and joint authorship of the song. The singer's name is Demi Uloa. And if you haven't heard that name before, don't feel bad. I don't think most people have, which is kind of her point. But also, unlike Rita Coolidge, she never sang anything again. In fact, other than information about the lawsuit that she filed, you can't really find any information about her anywhere. She doesn't appear to have any kind of social media. I couldn't find any pictures of her, any interviews with her. The lawsuit that she filed is not even necessarily a famous lawsuit. There was a court opinion in a U.S. district court in New York and it hasn't really had any impact on the music business or copyright law. But I think it's fascinating, and I think Demi's story deserves to be told. So sometime in 2001, Demi Oloa goes into Baseline Studios in New York City, and she's brought there by this guy named Samuel Barnes, and he tells her, come into the studio with me to watch Jay-Z record this song that I produced. Now, half of that is a lie. Jay-Z is really there recording a song, but he's actually recording a song called Izzo, in parentheses, Hova. And it wasn't produced by Samuel, it was produced by Kanye West. Uh, I was like, yo, I got one beat to play, I gotta play you this beat, I gotta play you this beat. So then, I put it on, they just start bobbing his head to it. Like, let me give you one of them looks, like, 
That's how you know you got a heat rock. Let me give you that right there. So then um, maybe about two or three minutes later, I don't know, you know, it was like this. He just tapped me on the shoulder. He said, H to the Izzo, V to the Izzo, for shizzle, my nizzle used to dribble down a VA. <laughs> so, I, so I went to the bathroom, right? I called my mom and said, Mom, we about to make it. We really going to make it this time. It's about to be on now. <laughs> but Samuel tells Demi that he produced the song. Why he told her that, we can only speculate. There's really not a ton of information. But in the court case, it says that he told her he produced the song. The lawsuit also just said that she was a friend of Samuel's. It doesn't say where they met or what the nature of their relationship was. But what's weird is that Samuel Barnes is a really big, well-known producer. He's half of a production duo called Trackmasters. Samuel goes by the nickname Tone. Originally, he was known as Red Hot Lover Tone. And his partner, Jean-Claude Olivier, is known as Poke. And Poke and Tone, as the Trackmasters, produced a ton of huge songs in the 90s. They got their big break when they worked with Puff Daddy, who reportedly bought all of their beats. And they produced Notorious B.I.G. songs like his single Juicy. They produced songs for Mary J. Blige, Method Man, LL Cool J, Nas. They produced Will Smith's song Men in Black. They're big deal producers. And they did produce a song on Jay-Z's album, The Blueprint. It just wasn't Izzo. It was a song whose title I actually can't say. It's the fifth song on the album. So it seems weird that Samuel lied to her. This is also coming from her perspective, so maybe she had that wrong. Maybe she just thought he said he produced the song. But the important part is, she's in the studio with Tone, and Jay-Z is recording the vocals for Izzo. And apparently, when Demi is listening to this unfinished song, she starts singing a little melody. You gotta love that, man. That's not actually her. That's from Jay-Z's Unplugged, but just to get you the idea of what the melody sounded like. And Tone hears her singing it, and he's like, you should sing that for Jay-Z. She sings it for Jay-Z, and Jay-Z's like, I love this. Can you come in and record it? So she records that part. That's a pretty important part of the song. It's like a really catchy part of the chorus. Yeah, this song. And then we have a chorus for a long time. So then... Tone, Trackmaster Tone came in, and we had different chords. We was going back and forth. I had an idea, he had an idea. And Track, Trackmaster Tone heard the beginning. He was like, yo, this was the beginning for the chorus. That's the chorus. And Ho was like, nah, I don't want to make no more name courses. So um, Tone was like, nah, just have a girl sing over it. And they leave the studio, and Demi doesn't think to ask about getting credit or anything. It's not clear whether she's any kind of singer. doesn't really say what she does, if she's a professional, nothing like that. But then later she thinks about it and she contacts Tone and says, um, am I going to be credited for singing on this record? Am I going to get paid? Am I going to be in the video? And at first Tone tells her, well, if we do use your voice, then yeah, you would be credited on the album. But he says basically, like, don't get your hopes up. We're probably going to record this with a more established singer. But Demi figures, even if they re-record my vocals, I still wrote this part, I should still get paid something. So she keeps asking Tone about the details of making a deal. And Tone keeps blowing her off, and then eventually stops returning her calls altogether. The song Izzo becomes the first single for Jay-Z's album The Blueprint, and it's a big hit. As the song's actual producer Kanye West later said in his song Last Call, it was his first big hit song. So, Blueprint... Ace to the Izzo, my first hit single. It goes to number eight on the Billboard charts, and then the album The Blueprint goes to number one. It's certified triple platinum in the United States. And sure enough, on the single, on the record, it's Demi Aloha singing H to the Izzo. So first, Demi goes to the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, AFTRA, which is a union that's supposed to help performers. She's not a member of this union which lends further credence to the idea that she might not even be a professional singer, but after it does try to get money for her. They contact Jay-Z's record label to try to get payments, but they don't get anything. And after that fails, Demi gets a lawyer. At first, they file an injunction against the album to try to get it pulled from shelves, but the judge ruled against the injunction. 
then Demi sues for copyright infringement and joint authorship of the song. For the joint authorship argument, she said that Jay-Z recognized that Demi's melody would be merged with his contributions into an inseparable whole, and that therefore Jay-Z should consider himself a joint author of the song with Demi. But the court said this is not really how it works. There has to be intention here. The court said there's no evidence that Jay-Z considered Demi to be a co-author. He never intended to share authorship. So they get rid of the joint authorship part. Then they say, well, the copyright infringement part, maybe. And Jay-Z's lawyers argue a bunch of stuff against that. By the way, the defendants here are Jay-Z plus his record label Rockefeller and their parent company Universal. So the actual case, if you want to look it up, is Uloa v. Universal Music Video Distribution Corp. Et al. But I'll just say Jay-Z's lawyers for simplicity's sake. So Jay-Z's lawyers say a bunch of different things. First, they try to say this was a work for hire, that Demi Loa was an employee, and so this thing created in the scope of her employment actually was owned by Jay-Z. But the court was like, you didn't do anything to make it seem like this was an employee. This was clearly just somebody that visited the studio. There was nothing indicating that she was an employee of Jay-Z or Rockefeller Records. They also tried to say that her conduct implied that a license had been given to use her work. The court said, no, it didn't. And then one thing that's pretty interesting is that they tried to bring an originality argument. They tried to say that her contribution was not original enough to even be copyrighted. And they brought in an expert, this musicologist, to say that basically this little melody that she was singing was reminiscent of a bunch of different melodies throughout history, going back like all the way to Mozart. But the court basically said that didn't matter. She could still bring a copyright claim. It's important to note that what the court had ruled on was that the defendants, Jay-Z et al., had filed for summary judgment. Summary judgment is basically when one party says to the court, like, I am so clearly right here. Let's not even have this go to trial. Just find in my favor and we can all move on. And this district court judge, her name was Barbara Jones, said, no, Demi Aloha has a case. We're not finding summary judgment in favor of Jay-Z. Now, I wish we could say that the next part of the story is that there was an exciting trial and that Demi triumphed. But like with most of these things, the case was just settled out of court. And we have no idea what Demi got. She presumably got some kind of payment for her work, but what she didn't get was credit. She's not listed as a co-writer of the song. If you go to the Wikipedia page, her copyright case is mentioned, but she's not listed as an author. If you go to Spotify, her name's not on there. If you look up the song Izzo on YouTube, for the most part, her name is not there. Although at least a couple people have uploaded the song and put featuring Demi Aloha, but nothing official. So this is really the one music story I've ever told that's still kind of an unsolved mystery. What happened to Demi Aloha? Did she ever sing any more songs? How much money did she get from Jay-Z? Was it enough to make up for the fact that she's never been credited? I don't know the answers to any of those questions. I hope someday that I find out. But what I do know is that I just can't imagine the song Izzo without Demi Oloa's contribution. It's always fun when I do a more modern music history story because there's stuff in there that just wouldn't happen when I'm telling a story from the 60s or 70s. Like Demi Oloa's first question being, am I going to be in the music video for this song? And the answer is, she wasn't. If you watch the Izzo music video, they're just random actors in the video that will sing along to the hook. Both the Demi part and the Jay-Z part. So it's not like they had one person and had them be in the video trying to make it seem like they were the person singing the hook which is exactly what happened to the subject of this next story. I think a lot of people might know the general elements of this story. It's a pretty famous story. But I still feel like this singer is underrated and absolutely should be a household name in a way that I don't think she is. It's a singer named Martha Wash. Martha Wash was born December 28, 1953 in San Francisco. And like Rita Coolidge, she grew up singing in the church for as long as she could remember. Her parents were very religious to the point where she wasn't allowed to listen to secular music growing up. She listened to gospel music like Mahalia Jackson and Clara Ward, and would have to sneak in listening to artists like The Supremes and The Temptations. One reason she loved singing so much was because it was an escape from the constant bullying she received because of her weight. And Martha got really good at singing. 
she joined her high school choir. And this choir was kind of unique in that they went on European tours and they recorded albums. By the time Martha graduated high school, she had recorded four albums with her high school choir. And she knew that that's what she wanted to do for the rest of her life, was be a singer. She, of course, had sang gospel for years, but when she got older, she also started taking private opera lessons. And she developed a unique style that blended gospel and opera training, and then the music that she liked to listen to for fun, which was pop music. She was part of this gospel group called Now, which stood for News of the World. And she also had a regular day job working as a secretary, But then in 1974, she went to a life-changing concert. The headliner was Billy Preston, but Martha was blown away by Billy's opening act. Martha said she saw him, he had this high falsetto voice, and she just thought, oh my god, who is this guy? She said she didn't sit down for his whole set. He was a young, talented, androgynous, openly gay singer named Sylvester. Sylvester would go on to have a bunch of hits in the 70s, sometimes referred to affectionately or not as the queen of disco. And Martha Wash went to audition to be his backup singer. She said the whole audition lasted five minutes. There were two skinny white girls auditioning before her, and then as soon as Martha sang, he asked those girls to leave. And he said, I want to hire you, but Sylvester had a unique idea for who his backup singer should be. Sylvester asked Martha, Do you know anybody else who can sing who's bigger than you? So Martha reached out to a friend who had actually sang with her in that gospel group News of the World and asked her if she wanted to come audition with her, which must have been a very awkward phone call to explain, I'm calling you because he asked for somebody who's bigger than me. But she auditions and she gets the job. And now Martha Wash and Azora Armstead become known as Two Tons of Fun. And they are the backup singers for Sylvester on a bunch of songs in the 70s. Ladies and gentlemen, with some heavyweight support from his backup singers, the two tons of fun, please welcome the sensational Sylvester. Eventually, they get their own record deal, but they have to change the name Two Tons of Fun to just the Two Tons, because apparently there was already a gospel group called Two Tons of Fun. And then they get their big break as a duo in 1982, when this songwriter named Paul Jabara comes to them with a song that he says everybody else has rejected. He had co-written this song actually with Paul Schaefer, the guy who worked for the Saturday Night Live band and then went on to be the David Letterman band leader. And they had written this song for Donna Summer. Paul Jabara had written Donna Summer's hit, Last Dance, so they thought that she would cover this song. But Donna Summer didn't want to sing it. She'd recently become a born-again Christian. She said she thought the song was blasphemous. And then a bunch of other singers turned it down. Diana Ross, Cher, Barbara Streisand all said no. And the two tons said no at first too. But Paul Jabara kept insisting this song is going to be a hit. And Martha Wash just thought it sounded crazy. A song about reigning men? Who would listen to this song? I'm gonna go out, I'm gonna let myself get absolutely soaking wet. It's raining men, hallelujah, it's raining men. But the song It's Raining Men became such a big hit that the two tons actually changed their name to the Weather Girls to try to cash in on the success of the song. It's kind of one of those songs that seems like it would have been a bigger hit than it actually was. In the U.S., it only went to number 46 on the pop charts. But because it's been covered and used in so many movies and commercials, it seems like a huge song. And it actually was big other places. It was number two in the U.K., number five in Ireland, and it did go to number one on the U.S. Hot Dance Club charts, which was kind of a portent of things to come for Martha Wash. Now, the Weather Girls stayed together for a couple more years. They recorded a couple other albums but they never matched the success of It's Raining Men. In 1988, the group broke up, and both of the girls went solo. And Martha Wash made a pretty good living as a working singer, singing backup vocals on albums, singing on demos for people. She had a big hit singing backup on the Bob Seger song, Like a Rock. 
She said that was great because they used it in a truck commercial that aired for years. But in the late 1980s, Martha Wash started contributing vocals to a bunch of different demo recordings for different dance music producers. One of them was a producer named David Cole. Martha recorded a song for him called You're My One and Only True Love in 1989. David Cole was going to give it to this female group called Seduction. And if you listen to my episode about demos, you know this is a common practice. You have a singer record a demo, you give it to the artist so that they can learn the song, and then they re-record it. But in this case, they released the song with Martha's lead vocals. Martha is uncredited on the record. It was only credited to Seduction, who only sang backup vocals on it. And the single becomes a pretty decent success. It goes to number three on the dance charts. But then around the same time, that producer, David Cole, he starts a new group. He has this musical partner named Robert Clavillis. I know I'm pronouncing that name wrong, I apologize. But Cole and Clavillis start a group called C&C Music Factory. And they get some other members. They get this rapper named Freedom Williams. He's the guy, if you're picturing C&C Music Factory and you're thinking of a shirtless guy with a little ponytail, that's Freedom Williams. And they also get this singer named Zelma Davis. She was a former model, but she is a real singer. She sings on most of the CNC Music Factory hits, like the song Things That Make You Go Hmm. That song, by the way, is one of the 750 that samples the Apache break. But there's one song on the CNC Music Factory debut album that Zelma does not sing on. And it's their biggest song, it's the title track of their album, and Zelma Davis lip syncs to the song in the music video, but it's not Zelma Davis singing. It's Martha Wash. Sing that part, so they'll know. <laughs> if you can hit that note. This song, Gonna Make You Sweat, in parentheses, Everybody Dance Now, used a bunch of vocals from Martha Wash's demos that she had made for these producers. And she's uncredited on the album and doesn't appear in the video. And this song is a huge hit, going to number one not just on the dance charts, but on the pop charts too. Also on the R&B hip-hop charts. And unlike a lot of songs I talk about on my podcast, it was a big international hit too. It was number one in Germany, Austria, Canada, the Netherlands, Switzerland, number three in the UK, number two in Spain, number two in Greece. This was a massive hit, and if you bought the album or watched the music video, you would have no idea that it was Martha Wash singing. So that's two hit songs for which Martha Wash did not receive credit, but they're basically by the same producer, so seems like maybe she just got ripped off by one shady producer. Except it happened to her again around the same time with a totally different group. This was an Italian dance music group called Black Box. They had asked her to record some demos for a bunch of songs, and then when they released their debut album Dreamland in 1990, Martha Wash's lead vocals were on six of the nine tracks. And a bunch of those songs became hits, including Strike It Up and Fantasy, but probably the most famous one is the song Everybody Everybody which was another number one dance track. And once again, no credit for Martha Wash. In the music video, they used a French model to lip-sync all of Martha Wash's parts. And to add insult to injury, she wasn't even a singer like Zelma Davis. She was just a model. But the good news is, Martha Wash sued in every single one of these cases. They all settled out of court in the early 90s, but not only did Martha Wash get paid, she got credit. They added her name to the sleeves. And in 1994, MTV added a disclaimer to the CNC Music Factory video clarifying that it was really Martha Wash singing the song. And so now today, for the most part, people know that Martha Wash's vocals were a big part of what made those songs great. She's earned the title The Queen of Clubland, and she's continued working as a singer and making albums to the present day. She's had 15 number one dance singles, and Rolling Stone named her one of the 200 greatest singers of all time. 
By any measure, Martha Wash is a legend. But if you ask her about it, she doesn't like to use that word. According to her, she's just a working singer. And one last thought for good measure. In the early 18th century, there was this playwright and critic named John Dennis. And in 1709, he had just written this new play called Appius and Virginia. It was an adaptation of an older play with the same title by John Webster. Whether John Dennis gave him credit, I don't know, but he put this play up in London at the Theatre Royal on Drury Lane. And not only had John Dennis written this play, but he had put a lot into the production of it. One thing he did was he invented this thing called the Thunder Sheet. Thunder Sheet. It was a thin sheet of metal that was stretched out and you could shake it or you could strike it with a mallet and it would imitate the sound of thunder. And this was a new technique, it was super innovative, but unfortunately his play Appius in Virginia was a flop. It got replaced pretty quickly with a revival of Shakespeare's Macbeth. But during that production of Macbeth, they kept using John Dennis's thunder sheet. And when Dennis goes to see Macbeth and he sees that they're using his invention, he gets really mad and he says, That is my thunder by God. The villains will play my thunder, but not my play. And this is where we get the phrase, To steal one's thunder. Some words said in passing, the entire world crashing down. That it's over, but then it goes on and on and on. This episode was written, edited, and produced by me, Patrick Hicks. Thank you, as always, to Brian Ashiba and the band Joyweather for the theme song to this podcast. Speaking of giving credit, I want to make sure that I thank Mark Jaffe. He was the lawyer that I had as a special guest on episode two of this season, and he actually made a video about that Demi Loa Jay Z case. That's the first place I heard of it. So thanks to him for that. Thank you to my patrons on Patreon. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you, of course, to my wife. I know I thank her in every episode, but since this is an episode specifically about giving credit, I want to make sure people understand that I'm not just saying that because she's my wife and I have to. I really have to give a lot of credit to the success of this podcast and to my whole journey as a music whatever I am to my wife. She makes a lot of sacrifices to make this happen. It takes away from the time that we could spend together. A lot of times she has to spend extra time watching our two kids so I can do this. Then she also contributes ideas and feedback. I bounce things off of her. She helped me name this podcast. She created the cover art for this podcast. So even though I'm the face and voice of the TikTok channel and this podcast, she is very much my partner in all those things. Thank you all for listening. This is the season finale of season two. Thank you to all the people that asked me to come back and do another season. I feel like it turned out really well. I'm really happy with it. And we'll see you in a couple months for season three.